Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. I'd like to start this podcast episode by thanking you all for, for listening to the podcast episodes, for sending in your messages, your ideas, and any kind of interaction you have, whether it's on the podcast or Instagram or Facebook. It's all hugely appreciated. I'd like to say also, so sorry if... I don't always get to reply, but I do make sure I read every single comment and interaction, and I do my best to get every single message, if possible, or as many as I can, into each podcast episode. So please do keep those messages, uh, those hints and tips, or any stories you've got, keep them coming in, and it's all hugely appreciated because your interaction makes these podcast episodes possible. Also, If you're happy to do so, if you've got time and if you know how to do it, if you'd be willing to share or write a review on whatever podcast platform you listen on or a Google review from Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs podcasts, it's on Google. You can find it there as well. Anywhere that you listen, whether it's Apple or Google or anything else, any reviews hugely appreciated as well. Right. Let's get down to it. Let me give you a bit of a life update. I'm currently in Ipswich. I drove the Defender on... God, it's been a blur. Thursday. Wednesday. God, I can't remember. Wednesday or Thursday. Drove the Defender back eight hours and 400 miles from Cornwall to Ipswich. I then, the very next day, woke up early and drove the Defender back from Ipswich over to Ninoverland to drop it off. So I'm back with the Fiat 500 now. It felt weird. This is embarrassing. But I dropped off the Defender at Ninoverland. Um, and they parked the Fiat 500 in this little area where they've got a few project vehicles and things like that. And I had forgotten how to drive the Fiat 500. I'm not joking. It, the clutch felt so light. I thought there was an issue with it. I had a mini freak out desperately pushing the clutch, wondering if the gearbox had broken. And it took me 15 seconds of not being able to move the car until I realised that somehow that the brakes had seized due to, I don't know, the salt on the road. So I hope no one was watching, but literally I looked like I had never driven a car in my life before. Anyway, I finally managed to get it going. Then an ABS hazard warning light came on, so the car wasn't moving right in the middle of the Neen Overland Road where they drive the Defenders back and forth. So I was there with the car not moving and I just had to pretend very pathetic. I had to pretend I was on the phone instead of the car being broken down. Anyway, luckily the ABS light went out and I was back on the road. Maybe that's something to do with the brake seizing, I don't know. But anyway, incredibly boring story that, but I've made it into some two-minute story. Long story short, the Fiat 500's back in Ipswich. I've got the Bonneville downstairs back to normal. So let me get to it. And I'm going to start just with a few, because I shared on, on Facebook, what are, what are your plans? How early do you start booking those biking trips? And a lot of people have got in touch saying, well, this is what winter's for. You know, I spend my winters getting ready for, for planning summer, spring biking trips and looking at places I can go to. So let me share. Just a few of your insights that you shared on Instagram and Facebook as well. Let's see what we've got. Okay. Um, 
So, I start with Tony. Yep, Freddie already planned a trip from Cornwall, Plymouth, to the French Alps, Monaco, the Pyrenees, Santander, and returning to Cornwall. Three weeks, maybe June or July. Uh, someone else. Every single night before I go to bed, I'm always planning in the winter, trying to find that silver lining from the poor winter weather in the UK by planning ahead for the rides that could happen in the future. Someone else trying to set up three-day trip to Corsica on the CB1100RS. Another, yes, Dublin to Rosslare on the ferry to Bilbao to northern Spain. I'll do the beaches, short distances and checking out nice towns, seasides and staying in Airbnb. Can't wait. Someone else, for sure, planning a trip to Luxembourg with two old Transalps. To a couple more. Yes, following our successful trip last summer to Barcelona in the Pyrenees on the Bonneville, we're planning another trip. Hopefully, head down to Croatia, then across to Italy. We'll make use of the motor rail. See, I don't know about that motor rail from Dusseldorf. Motor rail. That must be a train that takes takes bikes, maybe cars. We'll make the most of the motor rail from Dusseldorf, as we will only have limited time due to work. In the last 48 hours, this has escalated to possibly taking... <laughs> In the past 48 hours, this has escalated to possibly taking sabbaticals from work and heading off much further afield. All is being discussed on a nightly basis at the moment. Oh, I love it. Next one. Heading south to Big Bend NP, Guadalupe Mountains, then over to Arizona for the Grand Canyon and Mesa Verde. My, and next, my wife and I are going to Germany to southern, uh, going from Germany to southern Spain into the Tabernas Desert, bike camping on our two Royal Enfield Himalayans. Check out Fort Bravo on Google for some interesting facts. Yes, yes, I've seen it. I've been to Fort Bravo, the Tabernas Desert. It was the final biking trip I did before starting the YouTube channel. I wish I would have started it then. It's a fantastic place. And I'll just do a couple of your stories. Let me do just one or two of your stories on Facebook as well. What have we got here? We've got... From Pete. Yeah, what's Peter got? I've got a, oh, this is a good one. I've got a single ticket booked from Santander in northern Spain and eight weeks to go where the wind blows me. This is very, very popular. Spain, and what's also very popular for, for the Europeans, possibly especially the Brits, getting the ferry from southern England, or indeed from Ireland and over as well, but from southern Great Britain and Ireland, over to Santander, just cut out France and get straight down into Spain. That seems extremely popular. Right, let me get down to it. Um, I'm going to start off. Tony, I put yours, your one first. It may have been it may have been the last one I, I actually added to this podcast episode, but I found this fascinating. This is from Tony. Freddie. Here's something that not all bikers with motorcycles on finance may be aware of. Each year, I plan a few weeks on my Indian Chieftain Limited. Up until two years ago, this was on finance, and whilst planning a trip down through France into the Pyrenees and then into Spain, I discovered 
that after 30 days I needed permission from the finance company. It seems that this is standard practice and kicks in if you just go over the 30 days even by one day. My finance comes, uh, my finance comes wanted, sorry, my finance company, slight auto prediction I think, my finance company wanted proof of my departure and return ferry crossing too. I suppose you could say, uh, how would they know if you didn't tell them? But if you have an accident or the bike was stolen, then it might take some explaining. My solution was to take out a general low interest loan on the finance remaining in the bike. Doing this also saved me money as paying off the finance early saved money on the interest, which was higher than the new loan. Cheers, Tony. Tony, that is fascinating that you bring that up. I think that is it too far to say that is a disgrace from the first finance company? I hate that feeling so beholden. It's exactly why I don't like, oh, I don't like loans full stop. I hate having to say what I'm going to do with something. I hate it. It's like, what was it I was doing recently? Oh, there was something I was doing recently. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but I was having to explain every li little bit about my life. I thought it's completely ridiculous. As everything about my life I was having to explain. What was it I was doing? Oh, I was looking at a bank account and they were asking me how much money I think uh, I'm planning on making and how I'm going to be making that money and what my plans are for the future and if I plan to move house and if I plan to put money into savings. I've got no idea. Why do you need to know all of that stuff? And anyway, I, I just stopped it there. Just too many questions. Um, and a fascinating, a very, very good tip. Just go with a, a general loan as opposed to a loan specifically associated to a motorbike. Thank you for that, Tony. I move on. Freddie. Number one, have you heard of the Travelling Chopper? It's a man called Charlie Weisel who has done 240,000 miles on his 2003 Harley-Davidson Softail, which is heavily modified with enormous forks. He's recently taken it over the famous Road of Bones. Imagine that. I listened to a podcast with him and it got me thinking about how there's a community to whom cruisers are the original adventure bikes. There is a vogue for adventure bikes and a lot of people chasing the McGregor look. But what I respect about some of the cruiser riders is that they will get out there and clock miles in more casual riding gear. All this hits home because I myself went on a bit of a journey of discovery about what I like in a bike. And I went from a cruiser, a sportster, to an adventure bike, a Triumph Tiger, and back to a cruiser, a Yamaha XV950. I realised I like the styling, gear, ergonomics and power delivery of a cruiser too much to forego it. And when strapping a sissy bar bag to the passenger backrest, you feel every bit as adventurous as the man in a banana suit. Number two, you've mentioned the Yamaha XV950, which is what I own in a number of podcasts recently. And I'm happy to hear that it's definitely a much underappreciated bike in the UK with not many around yet fits the middleweight cruiser bracket perfectly for those who don't like the styling of the Kawasaki Vulcan or don't want to be married to the badge or cost of a Harley-Davidson. My only critiques 
of the bike. A no fuel gauge, ugly stock exhaust and air filter, and foot pegs are too close and require modifying. Most recently you mentioned it in its SCR 950 scrambler format. The reason the guy may have been concerned is belt drive can be bad for off-roading. Uh, if a stone gets lodged in the belt, more likely off-roading, it can rip off and otherwise damage it or otherwise damage it. So dual sports and scramblers tend not to have belt drive, making the SCR somewhat of an anomaly. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Nick, for highlighting that because I've had a few people say that to me with regards to belt drives and off-roading getting stones and it's not something I've, I'd ever really considered before but seeing as now I've had quite a few people echo your thoughts with belt drives and getting stones caught i.e. not good for off-roading it's clearly an issue. I move on. Freddie. I'm 33 and passed my CBT in December 2022 and I have my direct access mod one booked for next week. What more exciting What's more exciting is my dad, who's now 70 years old, recently gave me his 1975 Honda CB125S, which has 2,500 miles on the clock. A real minter and true shed find. That said, this Saturday, my dad and I are heading out for our first ever ride together. Me on the Honda and my dad on his 1952 Vespa 150. Wow, I, I'll just butt in here. 1952 Vespa 150. That means your dad's Vespa is exactly the same age as him. It's fantastic. I'm sure he must have bought it for that exact reason. I carry on. This has been long awaited dream of mine from being a very young kid when we used to go two up green laning because my clutch or my feet couldn't touch the floor on our old Suzuki TS50. My dad recently had a battle with cancer, which is now in the rear view mirror, and thankfully he's doing amazingly, still riding. In 2015, I drove halfway around the world from the UK to Australia as part of a TV show and have struggled to get that same sense of freedom and adventure ever since being back. Once I pass the Mod 2, all being well, I'm going shopping for a T100 and hitting the road. In summary, I wanted to say a huge thank you, thank you to yourself, Monica, and all of the listeners on the podcast for the inspirational thoughts and weekly comments which encouraged me to book my direct access biking course and get excited about riding with my old man, Steve. Steve, I'm sure everyone would echo you sharing that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. It's genuinely uplifting. To the next, Freddie. I'm new to motorcycling and just had my first spill. Uh, spill, and I don't know if it's an English term, but spill means first either crash or coming off the bike. So new to biking, just had my first spill. I hit some black ice at low speed and dumped my new Kawasaki Z650 RS. I got it after seeing your video. I see lots of videos about crashes, but none about these spills. As a 36-year-old, 30, it seems like such a stupid thing to have happened and I'm struggling to get over the frustration. My bike's fine minus some cosmetics, but I'm so disappointed in myself as a responsible adult. Curious to know your thoughts or if you had this happen. All the best, Andy. 
um, yeah, let me open this up. If anyone's got some stories on on crashes, how you dealt with it, um, let me know and I'll share those in the next episode. I would say from my point of view, Andy, I've never had a bad crash. I've had, um, how many times have I dropped a bike? Once, twice. I think I've dropped a bike twice just doing some ridiculous manoeuvres. But I've never crashed it. The closest I came was on my Triumph Speed Triple when I, I did ride quite ridiculously on that Super Naked. And there was one time I was riding, I was lane splitting on the M25, a really busy motorway that goes around London. And I was lane splitting and I was, I was going too fast. And I was, I was right up the arse of the car in front of me, excuse the expression. Uh, just too aggressive and the car did an emergency brake. I was probably doing about 45, um, 40 miles an hour and I had to fling my handlebar to the left just to avoid him and cut round him and I, I thought I was going to come off there. I really did and after that I, I thought, Freddie, this is just, just really stupid. You've got to calm down with that lane splitting. Um, that just that bike, I don't know why some bikes just do it. You know, that bike just pushed me into stupid stuff. The only other, t uh, and by the way, Andy, after that, um, uh, I did, I did, you know, make an effort just to not do sh ridiculously stupid things. You know, sometimes I can get too aggressive on that super naked. <laughs> Probably about eight months later, actually, I, I did, I did actually sell it just because I prefer the more relaxed riding style. The only other time, Andy, I've done something that's that's ridiculous. It's just a very casual drop. And I was coming out of my apartment in South East London and I forgot the, the fob to get out of the, the vehicle exit. So instead of using the fob to get out of the exit, I thought I'd just be clever and squeeze through the pedestrian gate. And I decided to do this while straddled on my Suzuki Bandit. And I pushed the button to open the gate. I opened the gate while I still straddled on my Bandit. I tried desperately reaching around to open the gate while um, maintaining balance on the bandit with the engine on. Lost my balance, fell into the hedge at the entrance of the uh, the block of flats and the, the Suzuki fell on top of me. So I was in a hedge, collapsed with the Suzuki bandit on top of me and because I was panicking I was trying to lift up or get myself free from the bike while holding my right hand on the throttle so the throttle was now being redlined and you could see people or I could see people from the apartments around looking at me and just as I was trapped redlining the bike stuck in a bush my neighbour just came past, looked at me and then just drove off. I think because it was such an embarrassing situation, no one wanted anything to do with it. I didn't damage the bike, but my ego was hurt because it was the most ridiculous situation. I, uh, I would say uh, the only other thing I've got similar, I remember once I had a, a crash while skiing and it does knock your confidence. The only way to get over it, jump straight back on the bike get right back on it and carry on because that is the only way you'll get over it quickly. Straight back on, dust yourself off. Um, I say learn from it. You, you know, we can't always learn from everything because sometimes things just happen. But try and learn from it, you know, with the black ice. Um, and you will learn from it. I've got no doubt, Andy, you will learn from it because 
you're new to biking. I don't think that's going to happen to you again. I've ridden in icy conditions and I've had some close calls, but now after a few years of experience, touch a huge amount of wood, I don't have close calls with the icy conditions. So you will learn from it, I promise you. But tip, straight back on the bike. Right, I move on, next one. Ooh, yes. Yes, I was sent this in. This is fascinating, actually. I was sent this in from Ian. Ian, thank you for sending this in. Fascinating. Honda Cub, Honda C90 Cub, one of the UK's favourites. The C90 Cub has been named as one of the UK's favourite. Yeah, it's the most popular classic motorcycle on the UK roads. In total, there are 275,000 classic motorcycles, which are defined as bikes over 30 years old, with an additional 349,000 motorcycles declared as sawn. That's statutory off-road. For a total of 624,000 classic motorbikes in the UK, and Honda tops the list of makers with 35,000 registered classic bikes, and the British manufacturers complete the podium with 28,000 classic bikes. C90 Cubs. See, we consumers, we do love the simple bikes, simple cars, simple bikes, because you've got, you've got relatable, tangible memories to those vehicles, as opposed to, for example, a, a Ferrari or something like that. It's relatable to, to your to your past, to all of your memories. Ian, thanks for that. I move on. Aaron, Freddie, I'm the individual that lives in France and was looking for an A2 combat compatible touring bike. I finally caught up on the latest podcast episode and would like to thank you for tackling the subject. The Benelli 502 TRK that you suggested seems effectively a good choice. I'll try it. Otherwise, on restricting power of some of the motorcycles by fitting a restrictor kit, I just don't think it's that simple. I'm not too familiar with the process, but I was told it was an administrative nightmare to, for example, restrict a BMW R1, R1150 and have it recognised by your insurance company so that they'll accept you to insure. And I've got a horrible feeling you're right. It shouldn't be this much admin, this much, this many issues, you know, for people to get these bikes that can hit the requirements. It, it needs to be sorted out. Thanks for highlighting that, Aaron. Moving on to Paul in Ireland. Freddie, I live in Ireland, where it's best to be prepared for any weather. We regularly get four seasons in one day. I generally get away with a leather jacket, except at the height of summer, jeans and boots. But I'm planning a trip to northern Spain in the summer and will need a rethink, especially the jacket. Mesh isn't a good idea, uh, as it will be useless to me most of the time. So vented. What do you wear for hot weather, particularly as you're off the bike a lot? It's a very good question. What I wear, probably my jacket of choice just to cover everything, I would say is my probably is my Bell Staff jacket because it's wax cotton and it's got the removable lining that you just remove with a zip. And that makes it 
just about okay. It makes it okay in the summer. Yes, you're, you're going to be sweating a bit in it, but it makes it just about okay. So I do quite like waxed cotton with a removable lining. I like that a lot. The only other thing I'd say, Paul, probably the only thing that's genuinely comfortable in 30 degree heat or so is a riding shirt. Uh, I've got, in fact, I think I, I I think I've only got one now. I've got, <coughs> I've got one riding shirt. You can probably get a, a nice one for about £200 or, or one on the more end of the budget scale for about £80. And they're very, very thin. Probably not the most amount of protection, but they're very thin. So if you've got the money, I'd get a riding shirt and just keep what you've currently got. But failing that, my jacket of choice for all season wax cotton jacket with removable lining. I hope that helps. Moving on, Freddie. I'm planning to buy my first motorcycle. I'm just a week away from doing my Mod 1 test and hopefully by the summer I can sit on my very first steed. I'm thinking between getting a brand new Royal Enfield, either the Interceptor or Super Meteor, or a used Triumph or Moto Guzzi. My question is, I'm a bit afraid of buying used bikes as I don't have the experience and technical knowledge. Would you still recommend risking and going for a used bike of my choice over a brand new Royal Enfield? And if so, what would be the steps to look out for buying used? My other question would be... Oh, I tell you what, let me get to the second question after doing this. Okay, I would say, Chris... With regards to do you go and buy a new Royal Enfield, well, let's touch on that first. If you've got the budget for a new Royal Enfield, either the Interceptor 650 or Super Meteor, buy new. They're fantastic bikes at great value and they hold their value very well. If you would like to save a few pounds or get a different motorbike that may be more expensive but that would be secondhand the same cost as the Interceptor or Super Meteor, then that's where buying used really comes into play. And I would say, don't worry at all about buying used. Just go out there and you can be fairly confident. There are only two things to bear in mind. My suggestion, buy a bike, because you're new to biking, buy a bike that's within within 12 years old or something, because they're all going to be fuel injected. They're all going to be you know, very modern with, with modern wiring. You're not going to be having any headaches at all with that. So get a bike from the year 2010 onwards or so, and it will be a very good, thoroughly modern feeling bike that you'll be able to ride with ease. The second point, the only other thing you need to worry about, Chris, you can buy privately from an individual or from a trader. You'll, you'll get better value bikes if you buy privately. And so long as you do a history check, you know, there are plenty of companies, Car Vertical or lots of other companies where you can do it. Get the registration of the bike you want, put it through a history check and just make sure once you've done the check, you have a look if it's got any outstanding finance and make sure if it's been written off or not. They're the two key things. Has it been written off and does it have any outstanding finance? If it's got any outstanding finance at all, walk away and don't even consider it. It'll be way too much stress and hassle for you. But if those two points are covered, you get there and you like the bike, you can just buy a used one. You'll be fine. Uh, I've never had an issue buying a used bike, ever. It's just been nothing but good experiences, so I'm sure you'll be absolutely fine. And I move on to the second point. My other question. 
at the moment, where I live, I don't own parking. Do you know if there's a good place to look for renting parking spaces? I live in East London, so I'm almost sure it's going to cost an arm and a leg, but I don't want lack of parking space to hold me back. All the best, Chris. Yeah, Chris, this is, this is a very important point you make here. I know East London, of course, well. Bike crime is an issue. But coupled to that, paying for bike parking and maybe not having bike parking anywhere near you is also an issue. And that will cause you to lose or to use your bike less. You know, if you're paying for parking every month for your bike, it may make you, depending on your financial situation, slightly resent having a bike because you don't want to pay monthly. Let's say whether it's even up to 50, 100 pounds a month for parking. And if you've got your bike off site, let's say a five, 10 minute walk away, it will mean that you're going to, to use your bike far less. My tip, and it's, uh, this won't go down well with everyone. My tip would be see if there is a semi-safe place near you where you don't have to pay. Because as long as you've got a bike lock where you lock your bike, for example, to a lamppost. So get a chain lock, lock your bike to a lamppost and then get a disc lock as well. So you've got two locks, a disc lock and a lamppost lock. So you're locking it to something physical. And I think you're going to be okay with bike security if you leave it on the street like that. Yes, you'll get, you may have some issues with it being in the elements, but so long as you're spraying it with WD-40 GT85 over the winter months, it's going to be absolutely fine, but just make sure you give it a good spray to protect from the winter elements. And apart from that, I personally, I would save the money on a parking space for the bike and, uh, and just do that. I would invest in two good locks over paying, um, paying the price for the, the spot, the secure parking, because I didn't find any good parking options for motorbikes in East London when I used to live there, Chris. Uh, but I welcome any feedback on that. I move on. Freddie and Monica, interesting points, Ari. Helmets, uh, safety and safety on the recent podcast. I did some research on YouTube and found out the new safety rating, ECE R2206. Very interesting regarding the new tests where they drop a pointed weight on the helmet and just how many more strike points all helmets will have to pass. So with this in mind... I've bought another Arai helmet, which is the Quantic, as it's the first, as it's one of the first helmets to pass the new ECE R2206 regs. I'm a bit of a safety, excuse me, I'm a bit of a safety person while riding, and I always use an airbag vest and the best possible gear I can afford that has the highest rating. If there's one thing you should spend more money on, and research the safety rating. It's a decent. Uh, it's a decent helmet. As your head is the most vulnerable in an accident. You could also say the torso too. Hence why two years ago I started wearing an airbag vest. Again, not all vests are rated the same. Some not protecting the neck. The one I went for was a clear airbag vest that protects the neck area too and is untethered, is an untethered one, sorry, that utilizes an electronic brain to detect any crashes. Sometimes tech is a wonderful thing. Nick, Moto UK, 
Yeah, you put me to shame, Nick. Put me to shame. That's, uh, you're seriously kitted out from a safety point of view. So it's, it's, well, I'm delighted to highlight, you know, a listener who takes, who takes safety so seriously. Uh, an inflatable vest topped with a very highly rated helmet. I've only just become familiar with, with all the differences with regards to helmet safety. So it's fascinating to hear from you. Thank you for highlighting that, Nick. Moving on, Freddie, just a quick one this time. Have you considered swapping the wheels out on the Bonneville for spoked wheels? I'm not trying to bash your bike or anything, but just find it interesting that you've kept the alloys on there when spoked wheels would look more traditional. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, uh, just for anyone who's not familiar, on the Bonnevilles, the one I've got, you've got these cast wheels, uh, like I've got, very basic wheels, and it's the cheap option. Or you can get a Bonneville T100, which is the upgraded version of my bike, and, and it's got spoked wheels. And the spoked wheels do look better, but they're more maintenance to clean. And no, Chris, I wouldn't change it. The only reason I wouldn't, because the spoked wheels are bigger, so it means I may have to change a few more things. And I, I quite like the basic simplicity of the alloy wheels because there's less cleaning and maintenance involved. And I don't think I'd do any more changes to the Bonneville. I think I just, I like the basic simplicity of it. Although I will admit, Chris, it looks better with spoked wheels. But for the Bonneville, that's it. I'm done with it now. I think no more changes. To Adam. Hi, Freddie. Going back a bit with financial freedom or dream bike. I think that people, I think what people have to remember is everyone's in a different situation. If your weekend's filled with biking and it's your life, then why not stretch or look for finance options for a new pride and joy relevant for what you need? Finance is a good option for people of all situations to get what they need there and then. Yeah, I second that, Adam. I second that. Finance can be a wonderful thing. Hi, Freddie. The chap on your last podcast was right about PCPs. I used to work for VW and can confirm the mileage cap only comes... Oh, this is interesting. Okay, have a listen. I used to work for VW and can confirm the mileage cap only comes into play in the event the vehicle is handed back to the finance company, brackets, which almost never happens. Most people either, number one, pay off the balloon payment with their savings or a private loan, number two, partex the car for another one on PCP, and number three, partex for another car outright, or four, sell the car privately and settle the finance. So the mileage only really affects the car like it does in all ways of buying a car. That's oh, fascinating. The only thing to be aware of is if you put too many miles on it, then when you come to Partex the car, it isn't worth as much as you want and you have to downgrade the kind of car that you want next. I hope that makes sense. And to my fellow listener, who was also uh, who was also right that you can end the agreement whenever you want, as long as you have the money to settle the finance, either through selling the vehicle or just having the money put by. 
Lately, people have done well out of PCPs because the value of used cars in the UK have been retaining their value so well. Of course, if this changes, then the PCP might be less attractive. I'm so sorry I didn't save your name, but that is fascinating, a fascinating insight. Thank you for that. I'm moving on. Graham in Scotland. You know the thing I love? A lot of Scottish bikers and a hugely passionate bunch up in Scotland biking. Graham, thank you for getting in touch. Here we go. Hi, Freddie. The last episode, you were discussing leaning off the bike on corners, moving your weight over, etc. I attended a MAC, Motorcycle Appreciation Course, uh, rider course, many years ago from Honda, which used ex-police riders to train you on lane positioning and corners. I've never seen someone go round corners as quick as this gentleman, and he was bolt upright on the seat. He didn't believe it was necessary to lean off the bike while riding on roads. As a rider of over 30 years, the best cornering technique I've learned was counter-steering, pushing the handlebars gently right when you cornered left and vice versa. It makes the bike lean right over. Most new riders, when they hit a corner too fast, end up going over the white line, which can be obviously very dangerous. Counter-steering stops this. Graham from Scotland. You, you have opened my eyes here, Graham, because your thoughts are echoed by a few people who have messaged in. I will genuinely now try to to see what it's like just staying on my seat more doing a bit more counter steering and not shifting my weight from left to right and seeing how I, and left to right and seeing how i get on thank you graham freddy i'd like to touch on three things from your podcast first about the guy living the fire community about the guy in the fire community he must oh fire for everyone who uh, who's new to the podcast Financially independent, retire early. So I continue. He must not have kids or a wife and lives in a van down by the river. It's a nice thought to be young and retire early, but life finds a way to, uh, to make that very hard to do. Second, to the guy that painted his bike green. As far as I know, for Harley riders, green is considered very bad luck. Because back in World War II, Many Harley riding dispatch riders were killed on Army Green WLA 45s, like the one you saw at Wars Harley Davidson in London. Harley made three quarters of a million of them. So after the war, they were sold as surplus. The returning GIs bought them for cheap and immediately repainted them any colour but green. Ask any old grey-bearded Harley rider about painting your bike green and they will tell you it's bad luck. And lastly, about the new Chinese bike with the Harley stickers on it. I don't know how it will do in Europe, but the dealers will not be able to give them away here in the USA. The Street 750 didn't do well, so why would a Chinese 350 sell? I would rather have an Enfield. Harley have a history of doing stuff like this. Back in the 70s, they had Italian-made lightweights. 
They're collectible now, just like the snowmobiles and golf carts they made in the 60s. Harley wants to get the new younger riders. By offering a small displacement cheap bike to get them hooked on riding, then they could get them to spend uh, the big bucks on a Sportster. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, great to hear an American's thoughts on that 350 Harley Davidson, Steve. And with regards to the, the fire community, financially independent, retire early. Yeah, yes, yes, I admit it must be incredibly hard. Not, And I'm not talking as someone from any experience because I'm not a family man. But yes, if you've got children and you've got a big mortgage to pay, uh, then it's difficult. But I would say maybe, of course, if, if you have an inclination and an interest, you know, plenty of people are happy not living a, a financially independent retire early lifestyle because maybe they, they you know, they, they're in a nice place that they don't want to. You know, they're happy with everything. But I guess for those interested, we can take elements of that financially independent retire early ethos. And if it is of interest, I guess you could say, yeah, maybe get a cheaper bike or a cheaper property to be able to have more disposable income and maybe, you know, untie ourselves from those financial burdens that can restrict us. So maybe we can take elements of that if we don't want to go the whole hog. Or maybe a lot of people, I guess, will have no interest in it because they're in a job that provides them with a good lifestyle and they like the finer things in life. And, well, I... I'm guilty of some spending sprees every so often, so I, I cannot argue with that at all either. Steve, thank you for that. Uh, and a fascinating insight with, with you know, the American GIs coming back and painting their bikes a different colour. I move on. Freddie, you may recall I emailed in a couple of months ago regarding my thoughts on selling my beloved 2011 Triumph Bonneville cast for a new and bigger adventure bike as I was worried about touring on it, but ultimately decided to keep it as it defines motorcycling for me. I thought I'd give you an update. Myself and three friends are just finalizing an eight night, 2,200 plus mile trip around Europe in June. Starting from Hampshire in the UK where we live, we're getting the ferry to St. Malo or St. Malo on the northwest coast of France, riding through southern France and do, 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 riding through southern France, kissing Italy into Switzerland, Germany, and then back to France to get the Euro Tunnel back home. That is a possible list of 19 mountain passes. I'm more than slightly nervous about the mileage each day, but it's outweighed by the excitement that is building up inside of me. Russ. Thank you, Russ. I'm excited just reading that. Just exploring Europe, 19 mountain passes, heading off from England, a group of friends, jumping on that ferry. I love that, jumping on the ferry over to France. You know, you have your, you have your English breakfast there to get ready. Your bike's all parked up on, in the, the car deck of the boat, just unspeakable excitement at the adventures to come. I've almost got goosebumps thinking about it, Russ, thank you. Freddie, 
A response to the listener who wrote in, responding to my previous email regarding A2 license restrictor kits. The listener mentioned the restriction on power being due to which machine it's been tested on. I'd like to briefly share how my testing worked in the late 2010s. Here goes. I did my A2 license on a Honda CB600F Hornet which had an electronic rev limiter reducing its peak power down to 47 horsepower. When I took my A license two years later, I did so on a Honda CB600F Hornet without a rev limiter fitted. During both training and test, I never revved the bike high enough for there to be any difference in how the bike rode compared to my A2 test. Perhaps a little anecdotal, but serves to illustrate how fundamentally flawed the graduated license scheme here in the UK is. I don't think new riders should be jumping on 1,000cc superbikes, but a 65 horsepower cruiser is equally out of reach. And a 47 horsepower bike is arguably equally dangerous given a poor riding mentality. I don't have a smart solution in hand, and it seems neither do the DVLA, but the current system is heavily flawed and forcing new riders into buying bikes with inflated price tags due to the restrictions. I don't think it's healthy for biking as a whole overall. Uh, Chris, it's such a pertinent point you raise, because you're right, the solution is flawed, and you're also correct in saying we are not, we, I mean, the government or the, the DVLA, the Driver Vehicle Licensing Agency, whoever it is in charge of allowing people into biking, I would say in Europe in general, they're making it seriously unappealing with the huge costs involved and also the fact it's so damn complicated. You know, you've got to have a 47 horsepower bike for one test and with some of them you have to wait two years if you do a certain test. It's all too complicated. It must be simplified. There must be a way to simplify it because at the moment it looks like a massive mess, a huge mess. Things have to be wholesale changed, I would say, because biking is a superb form of transport and it should be made appealing. But right now it seems, it seems to be that there's a mentality that it's just a hobby, so you have to jump through so many hoops. There must be a better way where you can train people in a safe manner. So, of course, we're not increasing road deaths due to badly trained riders, but there must be a way to simplify the process. Even if it doesn't mean doing less tests, but it must be simplified in some way. It has to be. Moving on. Freddie. I know you love a browse on Autotrader and eBay, etc. for vehicles. You're not alone. I love to see what I can get and what I can only dream about. And with that in mind, I propose the best pub game ever. Possibly a bit of crack on your new Facebook and Instagram pages. Do you know, I wanted to actually share this here. That's what I'm reading out here. Dream bike garage for £50,000 sterling. The rules are simple. You've got a £50,000 budget as many or few cars and bikes as you'd like. Vehicles must be currently available and at advertised price. Let me start with mine. All of these are currently on Autotrader. Um, and I begin, sorry, I just lost where I was. Let me start with mine. All of these are available on Autotrader. 50,000 pound budget, 
I begin. Land Rover Defender, 110, £20,000. Possibly with a Himalayan on the back on a rack. See, I love that. So 110, Himalayan on the back. The 110 Defender, £20,000. Number two, Mazda MX-5, quite simply the best real-world sports car ever built. I've had five, and the only reason I don't have one at the moment is that I need a back seat for my... Uh, daycare duties. Again, Auto Trader, £5,000. Number three, Royal Enfield Himalayan, a true round the world adventure bike for not much money that can be fixed at the roadside with a hammer. I bought this new when I retired in 2020, kitted it out for big trips, and all in all, I spent five grand on it. Okay, we're up to £30,000 here. Number four, Kawasaki VN. Ooh. Kawasaki VN 1700 Nomad. I love these. I briefly briefly had the 1500cc version years ago. To buy the equivalent Harley or Indian, you'd have no change from £22,000. Again, a big trip bike, but just roads and highways this time. On Auto Trader, £8,000. Let me just... Let me just Google that with the Nomad at the end. What is this Kawasaki with that, it's that Nomad word? Oh, I see. Just a really huge, lovely looking classic cruiser. Hmm. Very, very nice. And that's £8,000. And the final one, a Yamaha RD350LC. I have, I have to have a two-stroke engine bike. I've had RD250s and 400s, but I've never owned an LC or um, LC, as they were affectionately known. The greatest hooligan bike ever built on Auto Trader. Now, you're, you're splashing out here. That's £12,000 for one of those. And this is, this is an old bike, surely. Let me just Google that. Yamaha RD350. LC. Oh, wow. 1980 to 1983. That's a lot of money for the final purchase. £12,000 for a 350. Okay. Well, I know mine already. Land Rover Defender 110. Yep, that's in my dream garage and that's £20,000 at least. I've then got a new one I'm going to put in and that is the Honda Dax. And the reason being, if I do trips where I'm not on the bike, I would now buy a DAX, I could get on finance, it's so cheap, buy a DAX to actually put in the back of the Land Rover Defender 110, it would fit. So instead of having a rack, I may actually go with putting a DAX in the back. A DAX is 3,750, so that is 23 grand. I've got my Bonneville, I'd always have it, that's four grand. I would then have a, what are we on to now, 27,000 pounds, Oh, okay, I would have to have a, that's a tough one. Do I go for Indian or Harley? I would go with, it's so tough. Okay, Indian, Indian, vintage, dark horse, used. That's oh, 20 grand probably. It's probably 20 grand. Yeah, so that would take it to, what are we on to now? Around about 47K or something like that. 47K, I don't have enough for that. I was going to say I want a Jag XK in there, Jaguar XK. I don't know if I could fit it. If I can squeeze it, Jaguar XK on top of that. And just like you, Stephen from County Down, I would never, ever 
need another vehicle ever. I tell you what, if I can't afford the Jag, chuck in a Fiat 500. I love that car. There you go, Fiat 500 and I'm in budget. Stephen, thank you for that. You got me daydreaming now. Hmm. Moving on. Oh, I've got someone sent me a link. Let me just open this link and see what it is. Have I saved this by accident or not? Nope, that's the Telegraph and you need to be subscribed. I've got a feeling that's my dad sending me over an article, but I couldn't open it. I move on. Freddie, does the rising sales or do the rising sales of retro slash Royal Enfields jar with the drive to net zero an expectation of electrification? So sorry, I didn't write down who this was from. JB, I think this may be from you. Yes. Yes, it does potentially. It does feel to me. And I welcome as someone says I'm wrong here. It feels to me like the biking industry slightly feels like they should hold off on really committing to electric bikes. And I welcome input on that if you think I'm wrong. I've said in, a, in previous podcasts, I, I just, just don't know anymore if electric will be the future. Could some form, I've been hearing more about some form of hydrogen that could make more sense, much, much more environmentally friendly and potentially also petrol, diesel powered vehicles could be adapted so you can just keep using your current vehicle and everyone wins in that situation. So to, to go back to the question, do the sales of rising retro motorbikes jar with net zero? No, not specifically. I really don't think they do because you can still make a retro look like an electric bike look like a retro. Yes, you will lose the feel that people like from the, the retro bikes, but if it has to happen, it will happen and people will find a way. But I really hope if electric is the future, if it is, Harley Davidson, Triumph, and I'm very firm on this, they have got to start making electric bikes that look retro and not just super naked. And I know I always bang on about it, so I won't. But one of the big brands will have to actually make a desirable looking, decent, yeah, decent looking electric bike. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, so, so no, I don't think it's specifically fault of, of retro bikes, but uh, I don't see anything happening within the next few years for electric bikes being mainstream. I really don't. Move on to Sean, Freddie. I, I've been back through the podcasts and I'm wondering, Oh, I've been back through the podcast and I'm wondering, how did you get to where you are? I'm quite happy for you to say that it's a private matter, and none of my business, so I will not be offended. I'm just interested in the lifestyle you've created and wonder what it took to get you there. What's your main source of income and how did it start? I ask simply because I'm bored of the standard nine to five and I feel like there must be more to life than making a corporation millions from my hard earned work. Um, I love the simplicity in the nicest way of your life and sure some others may do. Uh, thank you, Sean. We, uh, we started, funnily enough, when we started, Monica and I, um, we were actually just a tide over. I, I used to do a card, which is a, a delivery job. And then as we were starting, 
to uh, to do some YouTube filming and things like that. We were just doing some some Amazon deliveries uh, every so often just to keep the money coming in. So maybe three days a week or so. So we ended up transitioning from a normal job um, to just a few days a week doing some very simple Amazon deliveries in London and coupling that with with filming some YouTube videos. So it was a gradual transition as opposed to being all or nothing, you know, quit the job and go for it. We transitioned from full-time job um, into some part-time delivery jobs just so we had enough food money until we could get going with, uh, with doing YouTube and things like that. But I should say, Sean, um, I've got a, a rental property and uh, and that helps a lot. So that's consistent income coming in. But on top of that, I would say that it's probably it's probably the overheads, the lack of overheads for for me are probably equally as important as as the money I make, because when we were starting this, especially with YouTube, uh, and had to just, you know, do these part-time deliveries just to get things going. A lot of the time you'd only be earning maybe £35 a day or so. But because the overheads were so low, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I've said I'm not a family man or anything, so I can live on peanuts. Because the overheads were so low, it meant that I could live off, I think I was probably living off about £700 a month, something like that. I could live off £700 a month. Um, whereas if I had bigger overheads, you know, a lot of people, it's perfectly normal, two or three thousand pounds overheads a month. I would never have been able to quit my job to do this because it just is not financially possible. I'd be bankrupt within two months. So I would say my biggest thing, I, I had no overheads. I remember once just before I got my delivery job, I had a, a recruitment company for, for eight years. I started when I was 25. And it was in a bit of trouble. In fact, it was in a lot of trouble. And I had a Jag XK at the time, and I had a Triumph Speed Triple. And and they were killing me financially, really killing me. And I remember thinking, God, that I I just don't have the money to to be able to look after them, and they're taking away my financial freedom because in the financial situation I'm in. So one day I was shopping with Monica. And I said to Monica, that's it. They're both going on eBay, both the Jag and the Triumph Speed Triple. In one day, I decided to sell them both. I just had a complete freak out. I thought, no, that's it. That's it, I have to. So that evening when I got back from the shops, uh, they both went on, on eBay and I sold them both for a colossal loss. I've just got desperate. I was just basically saying, put them up for silly money really cheap. If no one came back to me in the first day, I would then lower the price and keep lowering the price. It was just the worst sales tactics you can ever possibly imagine. So so overheads I found as a, a huge a huge bonus to being able to start getting into this, Sean. I would say I also did the same when I started the recruitment company. I lived in a I think it was eight and a half foot by five foot box room in Surbiton, southwest London, just until it got going. I lived there for 13 months. I would say um, overheads are really, really useful if if you can get them down, although that's not, that is easier said than done sometimes. Moving on, 
to David, Freddie, small boat. Oh, okay. I'm going to read out now a few different thoughts on 125cc bikes. Um, some of the new rules coming in in the UK regarding these and people's general, excuse me, people's general thoughts on them. I begin from David. Freddie, small motorbikes will soon be the only option in cities as personal car ownership will be banned and a small bike will pass easily between all road barriers uh, going in as part of the lunacy that is the 15-minute neighbourhoods coming as part of the fake UK-mandated climate change beep being, being forced upon us by the World Economic Forum in order to enslave us. Wait and see, folks. Wait and see. The second, with regards to the Honda Dax, it's lovely, I'd buy one. Ideal second bike to my T100. Is it just me or does it seem crazy that the first internal combustion bikes to be banned will be small capacity machines up to 125cc? Surely they should be the last. They sip fuel, they're small, can filter and keep moving in town traffic and represent the ideal form of environmentally sympathetic transport. It's madness. To elaborate, or to add to this, and I didn't know this, this is incredible, from 2030, sale of internal combustion engined motorbikes, 125cc and below, will be banned from 2030. And, and of course, th this gentleman says, well, surely that's madness. It should be the other way around because these are incredibly frugal bikes. You know, the DAX, 160 miles per gallon. I continue. One reason 125s sell so well is the expense and ball ache of getting a higher license. The government is now looking at making it easier to move up uh, as so many riders in this country have been riding 125cc bikes on a CBT license for years, just like me. That's a very good point you make, and we touched on that earlier. Very good point. Moving on. Bill. Hi, Freddie. I've got a 20-plate Honda Monkey doing 150 mpg. It's a fantastic machine. I love it. I also run a November 2021 Honda CB125F. It's currently showing 1796 MPG and it's a lovely bike and super frugal. The handbook says when it's running it will do 188 MPG. Hi Freddie, hope all's good. Watching, okay, this is interesting. I was watching The Apprentice the other night. Not sure if you're a fan. I am a fan. And the team's task was to make a promo campaign for the Maving R1 electric bike. To which, to which they did terribly. I've seen this bike before, and while it does look cool and nimble as a small commuter, I can't help but immediately be put off by the hefty price tag for what you get. It got me thinking about the future of electric and also the ULES ultra-low emission zones and other changes. As you've, as you've mentioned before, the infrastructure for electric isn't fully developed yet. So why does the government make more schemes to encourage regular motorbikes? So why doesn't the government make more schemes to encourage regular motorbikes in cities? 
Obviously, public transport is the biggest priority, but there will always be cars regardless. So why not try to entice them with some incentives for a bike as well? Maybe I'm missing something, but they take up way less room for parking, etc., and cause far less congestion, which leads to less idling engines sat in traffic, not to mention better fuel economy. What am I missing? I echo every single point you make here. You know, you have a look at, for example, Barcelona. There are, there's motorbike parking for free everywhere. And if you're an, a 17-year-old boy or girl, you can be riding it. And if you're an 80-year-old, you can be riding 125s. And the roads all feel incredibly safe. It's a way of transport out there. And you can say, yes, but they get the weather. Oh, come on. Our UK weather is not that bad at all. We're waterproof and it's a great mode of transport. And I'm so sorry I didn't save your name, but just as this gentleman says, motorbikes, especially 125s, they will get minimum three times the fuel economy of cars. Minimum. And there's no idling at all or very minimal stopping at traffic and idling because you're constantly on the move and you will significantly decongest all of the roads. Yet the UK government, whether it's the government's fault or whoever, I, I am not party political in this, whoever it is, that they are not seriously promoting biking as a, a real, you know, one, two, fives even, as a real viable, viable mode of city transport. It's never been, I don't know, has it ever been pushed? Yeah, it seems like they're missing a trick here. It would clean up the air. It would decongest the roads. It is a superb way to decongest London. And it's very rarely that cold in London. So the weather is perfectly decently suited for biking as a mode of transport. I tell, It's a very interesting point you make with regards to the maving because I did hear someone recently do a tweet just saying it's a shame prices have gone up. I remember when they were about, I'm sure, three and a half K or four K. Let me just see how much a maving actually is now. Yeah, OK. Maving, maving RM1. Uh, yeah, it's six thousand nine hundred and ninety pounds. Yeah, they're a lovely looking bike. The price has gone up. Yeah, the price has gone up. You can get a single battery version. So if for anyone who doesn't know, Maving's a lovely looking retro bike. Single battery for £5,995. And that will give you a 45 mile an hour top speed with, with 40 miles range per battery. So if you go for the single battery pack, you can get up to 40 miles. Bear in mind that's up to, we must assume it's 30 miles maximum because they never get what they say ever, ever, ever. I know that after the live wire. Get a dual battery and it will cost you an extra thousand pounds, but that will give you double the range up to 80 miles. Let's say that's 65 miles range, which should be just enough for the daily commute and you pull the batteries out at the end of the day. It means it's just a commuter bike, no more than that. And I do agree at 7K, it's, it's closer to the top end, although I do like it. Yes, it's a shame prices are going up, but I do like the Maving. But at that price, it does mean you're, you'll be taking away from a lot of people. It will not be a mode of transport for the masses.
thank you. My, my dad sent this in. Here we go. I found my dad's article. This, I think, is from The Telegraph, and I'm quoting here. Electric cars are being marketed as the green ideal. You're encouraged to feel as if you're doing the right thing by helping to save the planet. The trouble is that much of this appears to be marketing guff. If you buy one popular electric SUV, you basically emit 12 tonnes of CO2 just through the manufacturing process. For smaller petrol models, the equivalent can be just two tonnes. And much of the electricity used to power electric cars doesn't come from renewable sources either. Just food for thought, no more than that. That's from The Telegraph. I found it fascinating, actually, how much more damage to the environment an electric vehicle does than making a smaller petrol vehicle. A lot of the time in our quest for a healthier planet, we can have the blinkers on and say it must be electric and all petrol and all diesel is bad. And I'm guilty of that as well sometimes. But if you're level-headed and you look at the stats, it's hard to argue with that. That is a huge, hugely different impact to the environment, making that electric vehicle. I hear some scary stats sometimes where you need to drive about a quarter of a million miles to make an, a new electric vehicle worthwhile when compared to uh, buying a, a used diesel or petrol. Well, I was about to say thank you for sending that over. My, my dad knows. My dad knows. I move on to Rick. Freddie back. Oh, this is just something someone shared on YouTube, but I thought it's a, a beautiful little image in the mind. Freddie, back in the early 1970s, my family used the Honda Dax as a pit bike at the track while I was racing flat track motorcycles. My mum, sister and dad all got around the track on it for years, sometimes all three at once. And all of us racers, being teenage racers, would stage impromptu short track races, sliding around some corners in a parking lot on our pit bikes. The fabulous superb handling way better than our monkey bike dax ruled these little fun time races i hope they become available here in canada as we'll get the first one available here regards rick moving on uh, freddie oh this is regards to i think my dream garage from a couple of episodes ago freddie no 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 you have to have a 125cc in that setup uh, your three bikes that you chose are too close together chris you know, you're absolutely right. Funnily enough, just in my 50k dream garage, the Dax is in there because I completely agree with you. You're, you're absolutely right. Moving on, Freddie. I just thought I'd touch on the subject of motorcycle touring on a budget. I've been riding since 1990 and have had many different bikes, mostly sports bikes and muscle bikes. But it wasn't until I moved to Cornwall in 2019 that I decided to get a more dedicated touring bike as it's now a 700 mile round trip to see my friends in the Peak District where I previously was. I didn't want to spend much as I thought whatever bike I decided to buy wouldn't get much use other than these long journeys. A Honda Pan-European ST1100 came up locally and at only £750 for a very clean bike, I went for it. What a revelation. The bike's extremely comfortable, reliable 
excellent with a pillion and with full luggage, I can pack absolutely everything I need. I know these bikes aren't winning any beauty awards, but that doesn't matter. But that doesn't matter. But what does matter is that for only £750, I've bought a comfortable, reliable bike that I use all the time and not just for long distances. I got the bike with 46,000 miles on the clock, which is now 67,000. And apart from fuel and an oil change, it's cost me absolutely nothing. Like all bikes, these have gone up in price recently, but you can still pick up a well-looked-after bike for around £1,300. These bikes are renowned for doing 200,000 miles without any mechanical issues and require very little maintenance. Plus, my insurance is £89. Definitely worth a look if someone's on a tight budget. With regards, Richard from Falmouth. Funnily enough, just where I was. Thank you, Richard. Because this just shows, well, for one, I'm blown away, £750. That is a seriously good deal for such a gigantic bike. £750 for an 1100cc Honda Pan-European. It's fantastic value. And you're right, that bike will be as reliable as any brand new bike. And the reality is, it, it will do the job just as well. That is freedom. Freedom to cross the world for £750. And it's cost, it's cost Richard nothing. In fact, it's actually made him money if he ever wants to sell it. Bikes like that are magic. I love bikes like that more than any other because it, it shows that biking's accessible to everyone. I move on to Joanne. Hi, Freddie. My husband, like you, always wanted a Harley Davidson. Well, in 20 or, well, in 2005, he finally bought one and still has it. Uh, and could never part with it. By the way, we only got a sissy bar fitted to the Sportster last year and it's changed my life as a pillion, Joanne. Joanne, th this is always my first thought for pillion. I know I don't have it on the Bonneville and the only reason I don't have a sissy bar, a rear backrest for Monica on the Bonneville is because the panniers I've got very, very annoyingly will not allow for the backrest as well as the panniers. So I have to choose either panniers or backrest and I need the panniers. That's the only reason I don't have the Triumph backrest on my Bonneville, but I'm desperate to have it on there because you're right, a backrest for a pillion is the single most important thing for their comfort. I move on, Freddie, if you ever want to visit Bermuda, let me know, 21 square miles, officially a 20 mile per hour speed limit. Maximum motorcycle size, 150 cc's and the most beautiful beaches on earth. Regards, Nicholas. I just had to share that as a fan fascinating insight into biking in Bermuda. All my best, Nicholas. Hi, Freddie. I'm 32 and taking my test in the next two months. I've currently never ridden a geared bike before and looking for any advice on what to buy. Unfortunately, my credit rating is shot, so I need to save three to four thousand pounds and buying and then buy one. I love the modern classics and wondered if you have any suggestions. My plan is to use it every day, but also take a trip from Cambridge to Scotland for the NC 500 and back again. I'm so sorry I didn't save your name, but 
yeah, okay, big trip. You want to use it daily. You need the reliability. You've got three to four thousand pound budget. You can't go far wrong. I really believe a Bonneville like mine, you can get for three and a half thousand pounds. It's comfortable. It's reliable. They're surprisingly rugged and tough. They don't need a great deal of care. I, I would be very tempted to go for a Bonneville just like mine. Failing that, the Royal Enfield Interceptor would also be an extremely good shout. I know I also, um, shall I? W800 Kawasaki, have a look at that. And if you want something slightly more sporty, you can have a look at the Yamaha XSR 700. Take a look at the 700, although that's probably more neo retro than compared to a proper full on modern classic. So you'd have to decide if the neo retro is your thing. But failing that, let me just chuck in a few more. Take a look at some of the older Japanese cruisers as well. They're extremely nice. And the Moto Guzzi V7 on top of that. And I think, I think that should sort you out. But if I had to say one, the easy choice, because I know it so well and it, it would work well, take a look at a Bonneville just like mine. They're such good value now and they're, they're tough and reliable. Right, I move on. The final, final one, two, final two, I think here. Freddie, I've just finished listening to your podcast. Old Harley-Davidson versus New Enfield. And I wanted to jump in with a couple of thoughts regarding PCP on cost and mileage charges. I have used PCPs to finance multiple bikes and cars in the past. It's the cheapest way into a new vehicle if you're not fortunate enough, fortunate enough to have the money in the bank. But it's a complicated proposition for the uninitiated. The way I look at it is if you plan to finance a bike anyway, then by doing so, using a PCP, you are only paying the interest on the middle part of the value, the total cost minus the deposit and final payment. After your two or three years, you will either love the bike and find a way to pay it off, or you'll swap it anyway, or you'll swap it anyway, and then you will have saved yourself a few quid. As for the mileage limits and fees for going over the limits, it's never really been something I've ever worried about, and nearly all my vehicles have gone over. It's only ever an issue if you hand the bike back at the end and walk away from the deal. Even then, a quick bit of maths should put minds at ease. Example, a thousand miles, even at 6p a mile, only equates to 60 quid in fees. So it's only a nominal amount in reality. These are just my own personal experiences with PCP, but I do echo your opinion that it's not the value of the bike you're riding, but the time and experience in the saddle that you will remember. Like I said, just a few of my experiences and keep up the good work. I'm now off to pick up my brand new Royal Enfield Interceptor. I think this may be the the first weekend you'll have had it. So I hope you have an amazing first weekend with it. Huge congrats on the new bike. Moving on, Freddie, my question to you is I'm looking to get back into biking and I'm wanting a modern classic to enjoy. I like the idea of a true classic, but not sure if I'll trust the reliability of some of the older machines. Not that I don't love them. I've got a 5k budget. What do you recommend? I'm six foot and a hundred kilos and I need something that can, that can lug me around. The first two bikes that immediately spring to mind, if you've got a 5k budget, 
I have to say, I agree. If you're getting back into biking, I would say stay away from the classics because you're just going to want something that's reliable that you can jump on. Two that spring to mind, Triumph T120, Kawasaki Z900 RS. And I want to just check one more because it's a decent sized bike. Let me just see what you can get a BMW R9T for as a third option there. If I go BMW, are they at 5K? Uh, BMW, here we go, R9T Pure. I'm going for the basic one, the Pure, to give me the best chance. Can they be had for 5K? Or am I in dreamland here? Yeah, I think I'm in dreamland. God, the BMWs hold their value quite well. 7,000 for the, the R9T, so I don't think you're going to have any luck with a BMW. I would look at a Triumph T120 or, let me just check the Kawasaki. Kawasaki model Z900, 100 kilos. You're, you're, um, you're a, a, a fairly big guy, so it would be nice to have it, you know, one of these slightly bigger modern classics. What have we got with the Kawasaki? God, the Kawasaki's a 7,600 as well. It's a, a little bit harder than I thought. I tell you what I'm going to do. Let me just check that you can even get a Triumph here, a Triumph T120. So if I go to Curious T, Triumph, Triumph T120. I think it will come under Bonneville T120. Please, surely, being in the UK, I tell you what though, Triumph Bonneville T120s, they're £6,700. This is harder than I thought. Okay, okay. Honda, surely, can I get an old Honda CB1100? Not the sporty one, just the CB1100. A CB1100 RS, I think it will be. CB1100 RS, let's see if we can get one of these ones. 7,000 minimum. Honda CB, God, this is hard. I cannot fail, okay, here we go. Okay, I've got one. I've got one, I've got one. Honda CB1100, not the RS, just the CB1100. You can get a 2013 CB1100, of course, 1100cc engine. Looks incredible. There are very few better looking retros than this, and it's £4,600 from the Superbike factory. So you're getting it from a dealer with 21,000 miles on the clock, all in black. Looks brilliant. That would be enough power for your 100 kilo weight. I hope, uh, I hope that helps. Right, I move on to the final one. God, it's been a long one. Brian, Freddie, good afternoon. I think I might have stumbled upon the, best, upon the best deal on the new motorcycle market. I'm 27 years old from Ontario, Canada, and I've been riding motorbikes for the last nine years, and I've owned practically all different styles of bikes except for off-roading dirt bikes. I work as a paramedic and use a motorbike to commute to work eight out of 12 months a year. I purchased a 2021 Harley-Davidson Pan America in September of 2021 and had constant electrical problems with it throughout the riding season last year. So bad 
that it's a bike I wouldn't have considered taking on a trip due to the concerns of mechanical failure on the road. Being this is my primary route of transportation during the riding season, I found myself very unhappy with this purchase. I asked my local Harley-Davidson dealer what they could do for me in regards to a trade-in or buyback, and they didn't offer anything attractive and essentially feeling like they let me out to dry. Don't get me wrong, I love Harleys, but after my experience, I just cannot return to the brand on principle. Now I look out, uh, now I took out a loan for the Pan America, uh, sorry, now I took out a loan for the Pan America and ended up rather wildly upside down due to the amount of depreciation it took in the first year. Lol, I'm a paramedic and not an accountant. Bringing me to where I am now, I have a local BMW dealer that I noticed online had some very attractive deals for the R18s. This was a bike that I remember coming out and thinking that it was rather stunning, but wildly expensive. These bikes in my area are going for absurd numbers under the retail price. I'm trading in my 2021 Pan America for 2021 BMW R18 first edition demo bike with a thousand kilometers on it. Understandably, losing the versatility I had with the Harley, although I never off-roaded it, but get this, the original price of 26,500 Canadian dollars before tax purchased for 12,500 Canadian dollars before tax. That's a discount of 50%. Talk about a lot of bike for the money. Heated grips, cruise control, ABS, riding modes, 1800cc oil cooled boxer twin with all the character in the world in huge style to boot with three year warranty. Understandably, I'm in, uh, I'm losing their performance and versatility of the Harley, but it wasn't reliable. And considering the finances involved, it left me with a very sour taste. And that is from Brian in Canada. Brian, eye-opening because I've checked out these BMW R18s before and I pick them out as being a superbly good buy for exactly the reason you said. So I'm just going to compare because I'm so intrigued by this. In the UK, what can you get these for on Auto Trader? Yeah, £11,000. £11,000 for a one and a half year old BMW R18. That, that's a really good proposition because you're right, you're bang on. They have dropped a lot in value. That is a seriously good deal for such an unbelievably good looking motorbike. Really incredible deal. And I'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much everyone for listening. Have an amazing week all and I'll speak to you all in the next one.